Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 51. And if you haven't opened your Bible yet to that, please do so. Please follow along with me in the text simply because I'm going to be driving you back to that throughout the entirety of this service. Now, this psalm is known as what's called a penitential psalm, and all that means is that it deals with the confession of sin. So before we get into the text, I want to give you a brief background on why that we are actually dealing with that subject today, and we find it in the superscription of the psalm, and it records this as a psalm of David, and the occasion is when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, meaning after he had committed adultery. Now, many of you are very familiar with this story, but in case you're not, I want to simply give you a brief overview. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the story begins with war. David sends off the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites, but he stays home, ultimately. One night, he goes to his balcony and sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba taking a bath, and he sends for her so he can sleep with her, and he does. And then what ultimately happens from that is that she becomes pregnant with his child. Rather than own up to what he does, though, David contrives a series of ways that he can cover up his sin. Ultimately, he sends her husband Uriah to the front lines of a battle so that he may die and cover things up, that he can take her as his wife. And the text tells us simply that what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord, that he despised the word of the Lord. Well, the prophet Nathan comes to him. He gives him a scathing rebuke from God himself. And it's only at this moment that David actually gets hit with an awareness of what his sin has done. It is out of this background that Psalm 51 is written. Now, David is consumed with guilt, and rightfully so, right? He's committed adultery. He's killed a man. And then he pretended as if all of it didn't even happen. But God caused David to see that this series of sins that he had committed, as heinous as they were, only scratched the surface of his fundamental problem. They only scratched the surface of how deeply his corruption actually went. Now, some of you are here today, and you're not sure if you believe all that stuff about forgiveness, the need for grace, and the need for Christ. You hear a story like this, and you think, well, I haven't really stolen another man's wife. I haven't murdered a man, and you may well be right in that. The reality, though, is that what this psalm teaches us is you don't have to do what David did to find yourself simply described here. The ultimate question is not if you're like David. I mean, you're not. Even at his worst days, you're not like David, but even at his best days, you're nowhere near close to him. The question is, what has God said? Right? Are you of the same mind as God with regard to who you truly are? Does your corruption, your guilt, your sin go deep and just as deep as David's did? Many of you are here and you profess Christ, and perhaps you've never really considered just how truly sinful we are, or that you are. Perhaps you confuse sorrow over your sin being revealed, right, the consequences to your sin, as godly sorrow, 
And so the question for you today is much the same. Am I of the same mind as God? Do I agree with God, in other words, on the state of my sinfulness? Well, this psalm answers those questions and more here today, and it does so by showing us five marks of what true repentance looks like. And that's what I want to show you today. It gives us, in other words, certain qualities and marks and makeups of what show uh, whether or not we actually agree with God just on how bad our sin is and how desperately we need his mercy and grace. And so with that brief introduction, I want you to look with me at verse 1. We're going to start to make our way through this psalm, and I want to show you what the anatomy of a repentant heart looks like. So notice first, David writes in verse 1, Be gracious, O God, to me according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Notice he begins the psalm with a cry for God's grace. He, he first asks, ultimately, that the Lord be gracious to him, but according to his loving kindness or his hesed, as the Hebrew puts it. And that term, if you didn't know it, is an incredibly rich term that speaks of God's undying covenant faithfulness and love. That's what it speaks to here. All that David is doing is acknowledging that from the very beginning, he must fall upon the mercy and grace of God. David is intimately aware of the fact he's got nothing to bring to the table, especially now. And so what he does is he appeals to the one thing he knows will not fail, which is God's covenant love. That is God himself. Right? He knows that God has sworn a covenant with Israel on the basis of who he is. He knows that God has sworn a covenant with him, specifically, specifically King David, on the basis of who he is. And so David just goes back to square one. Right? His life is in shambles right now, and he goes back to where it all started, and that's with the covenant love of God. That's the unfailing, faithful love of his God. That's what he has to do. Well, secondly, notice that he asks that the Lord simply blot out his transgressions according to the greatness of God's mercies, or the multitude of God's mercies. Now, mercy is simply defined as receiving leniency where you don't deserve it. David knows that according to God's law, that he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, and he deserves to be stoned to death. These were not light sins. This was capital punishment. He's a king. He's not above the law. What he deserves is death. But he asks instead that the Lord blot out his transgressions or literally wipe the record clean And he does so by appealing to God's innumerable mercies, by the basis of who God is as a God of mercy. The reality of what David speaks to here is twofold. Not only is God faithful to his covenant, but ultimately, even when David is not faithful, God has an inexhaustible number of mercies at his disposal. And at the heart of it, it's not this get-out-of-jail-free card that he's trying to appeal to here. Rather, he looks at it and he falls on his knees. He begs the Lord that he would just simply treat him as he does not deserve. Right? He, he falls and appeals to mercy. He's like, I deserve death, but Lord, please, please don't give that to me. The entire appeal that David makes in th- this entire psalm, beloved, is all an appeal to who God is. It's all an appeal to God being the one who is merciful and the one who is gracious. And that is ultimately the foundation of genuine repentance. Right? When we confess our sins before God, we don't do so thinking that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, or at least I hope you don't do so, because that's utterly unbiblical. The reason we confess sin to God is that he is a God of mercy and grace. Right? He promises to forgive us. And all throughout the witness of Scripture, we see that God is a God of mercy and grace. Right? We see it 
in the garden with Adam and Eve. They eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and rather than kill them on the spot like they deserve, God gives them mercy and grace. We see with Israel, they immediately fall into rebellion and idolatry once they are delivered from Egypt. They grumble in the desert. They complain literally the entire time. And God kills some of them, but he doesn't wipe them all out, does he? He could do that. He would literally be justified to do that. But what he does is give them mercy. He does so according to who he is and according to his covenant faithfulness. He promised that Israel would become a great nation. He promised that he would always be their God. And so he does what he promises. Now, if you think about it, the same is very true for you and I, isn't it? I mean, you think of all the ways that God could have dealt with you as you deserved and how many times God has given you what you don't deserve. I mean, think of that. God has repeatedly given us grace and mercy. Even every single day that we awake, God has given you grace and mercy to wake up that very day. Think of all the sins that you've jumped into headlong just because you want your sin. And yet God has not punished you as you deserve in the midst of that. Think of the gospel. The gospel is good news because God does not deal with us as we deserve. Right? If if God dealt with us as we deserve, it would be hell. We deserve ultimate punishment for our sin, but at the cross, we find that our sins are wiped from the record. We deserve judgment, but at the cross, we find instead compassion. We deserve eternal death, but at the cross, what do we find? But everlasting life. Beloved, absolutely none of that is because God deals with you as you deserve. Every bit of it is grace, and every bit of it is mercy. Every bit of it is on the basis of who God is. He is faithful. He is true. He is just. He is merciful. He is loving. He is compassionate. He is kind. And he is so much more than that. And at the heart of genuine confession is a realization that everything starts and ends with the reality of who God is. That's at the heart of it. But there are multiple other realities that David shows us are at play here today, and we must affirm these things. Otherwise, we never actually see our need for mercy and grace. That's the reality. We just simply won't see why we need it. We'll think we're okay. Well, look with me now at verses 2 through 4, and I want you to see the first mark of true or genuine repentance that David shows us here, and that is that we accept full responsibility before God for our sin. He says... Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to here is that he uses a series of theological terms that are actually incredibly important here. So just simply look with me as I go through this. First, Notice that he uses the term transgressions in verses 1 and 3. Now, the term he uses here speaks of open, flagrant rebellion. It's not an oopsie. It's not that you uh, somehow fell into sin. It's willful, open, flagrant sin. In other words, he, he just simply makes no pretenses. He says, I violated your law, O Lord, and I did so on purpose. Right? This just speaks to the fact of what we often always do, doesn't it? We know what's right, and yet we find ourselves over here in sin. 
We know what our Lord is pleased by, and yet we do exactly the opposite. That's transgression. That's open-handed rebellion. That's what David is speaking to here. Notice he also speaks of a word called iniquity in verse 2. Now, iniquity speaks of there being this standard or this right way of conduct, if you will, and yet we've gone a different way. Now, think of it as a road. You've turned to the left or to the right, but the road just simply keeps on going straight. That's iniquity. There is this standard. There is this way, and yet rather than follow it, we've gone a different way. We've gone our own way. That's what Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, right? That all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity, same word, to fall on him. Now, thirdly, David used the term sin here in verses 2 and 3. Now, this is a term that you and I are very, very familiar with, or at least we think we do. But this term in the Hebrew, the way it breaks out is that it's talking of missing the mark here, right? So picture it like an archer. He draws his bow back, he aims at the bullseye, and ultimately he misses the target. He's not even close to being on target. He lets the arrow fly and it misses the mark, right? The standard in this case is the very law of God, the word of God, and the bullseye would be complete, perfect conformity to that law of God, all to the glory of God. And David just realizes, I don't hit that mark. Everywhere he turns, he says, it's just right in front of his face. He sees just how short he falls of the glory of God every waking moment. That's you and I, isn't it? You can't avoid it. Not only do we commit open rebellion against God, not only do we go our own way, we're prone to wander, right? But even when we try to follow our God as we ought to, we are continually guilty of falling short of the glory of God. That's all that David is expressing here, is that every single way he turns, every way he looks, everything he thinks is tainted by this reality. All these terms, they pile on top of one another here just to show that in the totality of who he is as a person, he is a man who does not glorify God even when he tries his best. Even when he tries his best. And this is a revelation that David has come to see is that he's just defiled in every way by this reality we call sin. His sins of adultery and murder, that's just the fruit. Right, the, the root issue, and this is a root issue that you and I all share with him, by the way, is that we are desperately sick in every single way. And sick is an understatement, beloved. We are guilty before the great judge of all the earth, and that's what David sees. God is blameless when he judges. David is not. Right, notice what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, God, so that you are justified and, you, and when you speak and blameless when you judge. Well, the point of this verse is, is not to say he didn't sin against other people, that, but that rather ultimately his sin is an offense before God first and foremost. It hinges off of the previous verses. It shows that David simply recognizes that the one who he rebelled against openly, the one whose standard he violated, the one who he missed the mark with, was God. Right? That's every bit of what he screwed up in. In other words, his sins against other people are ultimately sins against his God. The evil he committed was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
right? People can have all sorts of opinions about what you do and what you don't do, but the one opinion that matters is God's. But that should scare you. David knows there's, there's no hope of blame shifting. There's no equivocation. There's no downplaying. His sin is offensive, right? It's, it's reached the face of the almighty God, and what he does with it is he just owns it. He just takes the full responsibility for it. He agrees with God. He says, yes. It's, he doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't say the devil made me do it. He accepts it. He owns it. He knows that he's guilty before God in every single way. And all that this does is teach us something about the nature of genuine repentance or true repentance. First and foremost, genuine repentance just owns it. You just take ownership over your sin. It takes responsibility. It doesn't give excuses. It doesn't hem and haw over the reality of it. It just says, you know what? It's sin. God has declared it's sin. Therefore, it is sin. And therefore, I am a sinner. And I am guilty before the great judge of all the earth. But then it actually produces something. Look again at verse 4 here. Notice that when David takes full responsibility for his actions, something happens. He says that God is justified when he speaks and blameless when he judges. In other words, when he admits his guilt, when he agrees with God, the occasion for blasphemy from others has been removed. Here's what I mean by that. Well, David holds on to his sin. He communicates to everybody else that what he believes about sin is that God is a liar, in essence, right? God's not all that serious about sin. But if David confesses his sin, what does he show? He shows a watching world that God is true. God is all that concerned about sin and that David's the liar. That's a radical difference, isn't it? David's the one with the problem and he's got a massive problem here. He's a sinner through and through and he knows this. And so what he does is he cries out to uh, to God for mercy and grace. He knows that he's powerless to change things. He knows that even when he tries his best, he still misses the mark. But notice he's not content to stop here. This is the the crazy thing. That's bad enough, right? You and I see that and we're like, okay, that's bad. But David, he's just, look, we're utterly hopeless from the very beginning. This is what he goes to next here. He reveals that our fundamental problem is not just that you and I are rebellious or wayward or that we miss the mark, but that ultimately we have always had this problem from the very moment of conception. Meaning that long before your mom and dad even thought of you, You've been guilty. It's part of who you are. It's ingrained in who you are. I want you to see this, so look, with the, look down with me at verses 5 through 6. In verse 5, David begins by saying, Behold, that if pay attention, look, see, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And when David says he was brought forth in iniquity, all he means by that is that he was born into this world. Right from the very first day he was born into the world, he was already going astray. He was already guilty of going the wrong way. But then notice that he pinpoints as well beyond simply being born into a world full of iniquity and that he's iniquitous himself. He says, long before I was even the thought in the mind of my mother, I was already in a state of sin. In fact, I was already guilty. Right, just as a quick aside, this blows the whole argument out of the water for those who want to sanctify or make holy a practice of abortion, doesn't it? Not only does Scripture just simply recognize a moment of conception right here as the point where David became who he was as a person, 
but that it speaks to the fact that even at that moment, he was already morally culpable and he was guilty before his Lord. The point that he makes here is that he was conceived and born into this realm of iniquity and sin. In other words, it's part and parcel to who he is as a person, but more importantly, it automatically makes him guilty. Automatically. Just picture there's these two realms or states of existence, if you will, and one state is this realm of innocence and the other state is this realm of corruption. David says, I was born into this realm of corruption. Well, in the state of innocence, you have a world that's free from sin and its effects. In every single aspect, things are perfect. Everything's morally pure. Everything's without the stain and corruption of sin. There's nothing that's broken and wrong. That's certainly not the world that you and I inhabit, is it? Well, in this realm of corruption, there's only a world that is broken, only a world that is twisted, and only a world that is distorted through and through by the presence of sin. That's the world David says he was born into. That's the world he says he was conceived into. From the very earliest moment of his life, he was in sin. And that's the world you and I are in. From the very first day of our existence as an embryo in our mother's womb, we've been sinners. We've been all messed up by this reality of sin. From day one, we've been guilty. That's how deep this corruption goes. That's what he's saying here. He's like, this is how deep this goes, guys. We're hopeless. It's part of your nature. It's part of who you are. It's an inescapable realm that you've been born into, you were conceived into. But then notice he doesn't stop even here. Verse six, he says, behold, you, speaking of God, by the way, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. What David's saying here is that he was, he was uniquely created by God to desire truth and to receive wisdom. And yet, despite all that, he still acted according to his nature as a sinner. Sin has dominated everything. But the Apostle Paul speaks of this reality in, in Romans 3, right? Romans 1 through 3, he leads up to this point, but he talks about how every man is without excuse, simply by the invisible qualities of God revealed in nature. But then in Romans 3, he simply lays it all flat. He says, there is no one who is righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, no one who does good, not even a single soul. He likewise says in Romans 8 that the mind of the flesh, and that speaks of everybody born into this world, by the way, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it, nor can those in the flesh even please God. It's an impossibility. And this is the all-encompassing power of sin. Right? Sin literally tarnishes and ruins and taints everything. Its corrupting power shows up in every single man, woman, and child, and it renders us incapable of pleasing God. What God desires is that we know truth, that we know wisdom in our innermost being, meaning at the very core of who we are, his creative intent was that we would glorify him, that we would know the truth, that we would submit to the truth, 
And yet sin's corrupting power has ruined even this. That's how messed up we are. Romans 1 says that you and I just simply suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We press it down. On our best days, we are utterly morally corrupt. We're unclean. We're unfit to come before God. And every single thing that you and I have ever done that's wrong is because of this reality that we call sin. Well, now you're starting to see why David is so broken, aren't you? That's bleak. He sees things as God sees them. Finally, he sees the truth of it and he confesses the truth of it. But he also simply recognizes there's nothing he can do to stop it. He can't fix it. In light of that, look at what he asks for in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, he starts, he says, Purify me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice the certainty there. Right? If God acts, what happens? David knows he's, he's utterly unclean. He's defiled by every measure And yet he knows that if God acts and purifies him, he will be clean. The reality that David communicates here is that he's he's ultimately a spiritual leper. He can't enter into the presence of his God. Sin has defiled him so much that he's unclean. He's unable to participate in the life of worship in the temple. He's unable to have fellowship with his God. He's worthy of death. But if God acts in mercy and grace and cleans him, He will be pure. He uses the analogy of snow here, and he shows that as white as snow may be, if God extends mercy to him, if God gives him grace, he will be even whiter. Oh, is this not just the beautiful reality of what God has done to us in Christ? White as snow may be, the forgiven sinner is whiter and purer and brighter If you trust in Jesus Christ, there is no sin so great and so odious that Jesus will not cleanse you from it purely by grace. You may be leprous, you may be separated from the Father because of your sin, but Jesus' blood will grant forgiveness. It atoned for those of you who profess Christ. You were washed, the scriptures say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's how far-reaching this goes. Our sin utterly defiles us, and yet the scriptures say that if God acts in mercy and grace, that he will utterly cleanse us. David looks at that and he says, you are a God of mercy and grace. I am defiled. Wash me, Lord. If you don't believe you're filthy because of your sin, how can you come to trust the one who can cleanse you? This is a mark of true repentance, right? True repentance and confession must be born out of this reality. We have to recognize we're utterly defiled. 
We're defiled by sin so much so that everything we are as a person is, is corrupted by this reality. But it's only when we see our need for cleansing that we can come to the one who can actually do it. Right? If we pretend as if there's no problem there, then we'll never go to God for his grace. But the problem is that you and I are so much more like David in 2 Samuel 11 than we are like David here, aren't we? We, we sin, we cover our tracks, we commit more sin in the process, and all the while we neglect the fact that if we would simply come before God and admit our guilt, that we would agree with God on our sin, that he promises to cleanse us. A part of the reason we never come to a point of true confession is because we like our sin. We like it. We don't agree with God that it is as bad as he says it is. We hedge our bets. We paint a picture as if to say our sins are more like little oopsie daisies than open flagrant rebellion before our creator. The fundamental problem is that you and I have been doing this all our life. We're experts at it. We know it brings death, and yet we do it anyway. We know it makes us miserable even. The enticement of sin, though, draws us little by little into exchanging the glories of God's grace for the miseries of God's discipline. And that's exactly what David now comes to see next. When David tried to suppress his sin, he tried to cover it up, he tried to blame shift, but as a result, he felt the crushing weight of his discipline from the Lord. Notice what he says in verses 8 through 9. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You can really get a glimpse into the heart of a man, can't you? He's got this newfound awareness of his sin as it just simply washes over him. First he prays that the Lord would just Give him joy and gladness. The reason for that is relatively simple. He has no joy and gladness. He's feeling the crushing weight of his guilt, of his sin. It's brought him to a point of despair, and God has quite literally crushed his soul to get him there. God has literally brought him to his knees to see this. David not only came to see the guilt of his actions, his waywardness from birth and all this stuff, but He's had to watch his stolen wife carry his child for nine months only to watch that little baby boy die. But more than this, Israel is always going to be at war until the day he dies. It doesn't just start with the body of a baby. All of David's days will be tainted by this reality, the consequences to his sin, body after body will go into the grave. That's a guilt that doesn't go away. That's a guilt that haunts you. You don't forget it. So he asks for joy. He asks for gladness. And that joy and gladness is tied to being forgiven. Right? The circumstances aren't going away. The consequences aren't going to magically disappear. He knows that. What he asks for is joy and gladness in the salvation of the Lord. He knows that if the Lord will turn his face away and blot out his sins and forgive him, 
that he can actually have that joy. He can be glad again, in other words. He can rejoice because God has wiped the record clean. I think of so many of you who live with the painful reality of just choices you've made. Just sins that you know that you committed long ago that have never gone away, they hang over your head, and it eats at you day after day. I, I have the same reality. My own past is littered with regret and the consequences still hang around today. People died because of the world I introduced them to. That doesn't go away. But I have joy. There is gladness in the salvation of my Lord. I know that the record has been wiped clean. My sin will not be held against me on the day of judgment because Christ has taken the wrath that I deserve. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Jesus Christ, beloved, you can have joy and gladness in the salvation that God has given you because literally every one of those things has been taken from you. Well, perhaps you're living in a state of unrepentant sin now and, and you feel the discipline of the Lord. Would you not just simply look at the beauty of this? Recognize first and foremost that his discipline is there, but secondly, just admit that you're guilty. Admit that you're defiled. It's not a secret to him. But that's a point where you can now come to be cleansed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you start on the road to repentance, but it, it, it doesn't end there. Right? There's, there's much more that has to change, but the reality is that none of it can change until God has given you grace to begin with. But notice that our problem isn't just that we're sinners by nature. I mean, this is how, how hopeless we are apart from Christ. David's problem, as he shows us now in 10 through 13, is that his own heart is all screwed up. His own heart is messed up. He needed to confess that too, but more than that, he, he knows he needs the Lord to actually change it. So look with me now at verses 10 through 13. He begins by saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Now, David fundamentally recognizes that there is this perfect storm of misplaced affections and loves and devotions in his heart, and it goes all the way back to what he's already said thus far in his psalm about his true spiritual condition. But notice what he asks for in light of all this. All right, starting in, in verse 10 here, he asks for a pure heart. He recognizes, in other words, that his willful sin, his waywardness from God's commands, his, his open rebellion, his missing the mark, all of it is a result of an impure heart. Remember, in verses 1 and 3, he spoke of his transgressions, right? He has his high-handed rebellion toward God. And ultimately, David knew that his rebellion was born out of a love for sin rather than a love for God, and so he asks the Lord to change his heart. Secondly, David asks for a renewed and steadfast spirit within him. Well, the reason for this is that he's not set his heart to delight and obey the Lord. In verse 2, he spoke of his iniquity, right? That's that reality that all of us are just simply prone to wander and go our own way. Well, he asks in light of this that the Lord would give him endurance on that way 
that is the right way, so that he would not go astray. In verse 11, David asks that God would not cast him away from his presence nor take his spirit away from him. Now, David doesn't believe he's in jeopardy of losing his salvation here. There's a little bit more going on in the text that I have to explain, but the reality is that in the Old Testament, the spirit worked in a different way than we see in the New Testament. Right? The Spirit would uniquely empower people for a specific task, and after a season of time, the Spirit would then not empower them in that way. We, we see this in different aspects where you have, in the beginning, the men and women trying to build the tabernacle. They were empowered by the very Spirit of God so they could complete that work. You have the prophet Amos. This is one Matt and I were talking about where you, you just love it. He's a farmer and a tender of sycamore figs, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He then goes and pr- pronounces judgment And then the Spirit of the Lord departs from him, and he just goes back to farming, right? He gets disrupted from his ordinary life and comes and pronounces doom, and then he goes back to his ordinary little life. Well, the kings of Israel had the same exact thing happen. They would be, it would be different, but this unique empowering of the Spirit would rest upon them, and you didn't have to be saved for this to happen, but it would rest upon them because they were representatives of God in office, That's what they were intended to do. They were to represent God to the people. They were to be empowered by the Spirit so that way they could live in righteousness. Well, David saw Saul have the Spirit leave him because of his sin. David is just, he's terrified of the same thing happening to him. And every aspect he realizes his sin puts him in this really real jeopardy of losing the empowerment of the Spirit And so at the heart of it is a recognition that he loses his close fellowship with his God, and he he desperately doesn't want that. Then notice in verse 12, he requests that the Lord restore to him the joy of his salvation, that is God's salvation, and for God to sustain him with a willing spirit. In everything, David's not simply asking that he be of one mind or in agreement with God over the state of his sinfulness but that he would be in agreement with God on what God has said is right. He's asking that God would change his heart so that he will walk in agreement with what God has said is right. He's no desire, in other words, to go back into open rebellion. He has no desire to go back into his own way. He's no desire to miss the mark anymore. So he asks that the Lord would change his heart that the Lord would give him the ability to do this. At the heart of it is this realization that his sins, his transgressions, his iniquity, has ultimately messed up every bit of his relationship with his God. He doesn't want to lose fellowship with his God. He doesn't want anything, especially his sins, to get in the way of that. But the problem is that the sins he's committed, his fundamental nature as a sinner, his own wayward heart betrays him. So he appeals to the Lord for mercy and grace. David's uniquely aware of the fact that he is all messed up. But he's also uniquely aware of the fact that God has the power to change the heart. I think it's incredibly interesting that in the the wake of everything, David just doesn't pray like you and I would pray. Or you think about it, you and I would be like, Lord, keep my heart pure so that I don't look upon another woman in lust. Lord, don't let me go back into the sin of adultery or the sin of murder. 
And I don't, I'm not saying that those are inherently evil, but David doesn't ask for that. David asks for complete inward transformation, an overhaul of his heart, and ultimately a change of who he is. He wants every bit of his desires to change. And I believe one of the reasons you and I tend not to pray in this way to God is because when we sin, we truthfully don't desire that kind of a radical transformation in our hearts. What you and I do is in the midst of seeking forgiveness from the Lord, we're already scheming of ways to go right back into that sin, aren't we? We're already thinking of how we can protect it a little bit. Right? We'll give up other pet sins, but we won't give up that one because it's more dear to us. We dutifully seek forgiveness from the Lord. We know we're supposed to, and yet we get into thinking that the root issue is something other than us. It's something other than our heart. The reason for it is in, in the heart of hearts or what it is that makes up who we are, we actually want that sin and not a pure heart that ultimately delights and savors in God. To put it plainly, we're all messed up. We might be of the same mind with God in the fact that what we do is sin, but we're not always of the same mind with God in what we should desire in place of that sin. And part of it is simply that we don't even know what to ask for. But that is why we fail in our repentance time and again and go back to our sin time and again. But the heart of genuine confession and repentance is a realization that even at the deepest level of who you and I are, is that we are fundamentally at enmity or at odds with our creator. In a nutshell, that's, that's a problem of all humanity. If you're wondering why humanity is all messed up, this is why. This is you and this is me, and apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, this is who you and I will remain. And if you're brutally honest with yourself, your heart is just like mine, and it is always being led astray so, so quickly, isn't it? But David cries to the Lord to change his heart. David has a proper understanding of what needs to change, and this is what he looks for and asks for. He doesn't wallow in his sin and despair. He doesn't go into nihilism. What he does is he goes right back to the one he knows can fix it. True repentance ultimately leads us back to God because it's the only place we can go beloved. But notice that a changed heart, genuine repentance will actually produce something. Verse 13, David says that he will teach transgressors God's ways and that sinners will be converted to God. So what does he mean by teaching them God's ways? Well, in light of everything so far, the context is relatively clear. What he's going to teach them is that they are also rebellious against God that their sin is an affront to God, but also that God is an incredibly gracious and merciful God if they would go before him in confession. He will lead them, in other words, to see the same great truths that he has come to see, and the result will that sinners will be converted. There will be genuine repentance and faith. They will see the error of their ways, but they will see the God of mercy and grace. And if you think about it, this is ultimately the fruit of true repentance in the life of the believer, is it not? 
when you really understand the devastating consequences of sin, when just how much it messes you and I up on every single level, and yet you come to the realization that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven, utterly forgiven of that, you can't help but tell other people. You can't help but shout of God's mercy and grace. That's, in essence, what it means to have the joy of your salvation. Right, think of that when you were first saved, right? When you first professed to believe the gospel, you had this hope. I mean, if, if you were anything like I was, you went around like a bumbling idiot and you're telling everybody you can about who Christ is. You're like, look, I'm a sinner, but Jesus saved me. And my theology was all out of whack, but I could not help but talk to people about Jesus. We are much more like Eeyore. I'm forgiven. Washed by the blood of Jesus. How blessed am I. This is joyful, beloved. Think of how amazing it is that God has saved you. How mind-blowing it is that he will forgive you if you confess that you are a sinner and come to him for the need of Christ. Oh, that's perfect, by the way. <laughs> but what else can you possibly do with that information but shout out from the rooftops if you see how great God's grace is? But David doesn't even stop here. Right? He realizes his worship was all messed up as well, and this is what he's now going to talk about in this next session. He knows that he didn't glorify God as he ought to. He knows that God must be rightly praised. And so when we come to true repentance, David shows it's not just that we accept our responsibility. It's not that we're just aware of how defiled and messed up we are. It's not that we acknowledge our impure heart, but that ultimately we acknowledge that we improperly worship God. And we don't come to him as he demands. We recognize God has not been glorified, and we must repent of that as well. That's the fourth mark of true repentance. True repentance admits our improper worship of our creator. And notice that David begins here. He asks the Lord to deliver him from his blood guilt in verse 14, so that he will joyfully sing of God's righteousness and declare God's praise. Right, he's aware of the fact that he's committed murder. There's no question of that in his mind. He knows that his guilt prevents him from being able to worship God as he ought to. He knows that he needs forgiveness. And he knows that if he is forgiven, what will come of it is praise. Again, right, if you understand the depth of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, how can you do anything else but praise God? Notice in verse 16, he supplies a reason why he needs his forgiveness why he can't just come and worship. It says, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So what is David aware of here? Well, he's aware, acutely aware, oh, by the way, that God does not desire superficial worship. David just can't come to him in any old way. He must come to him in a way that God has set forth. He can't worship him superficially, in other words. But he must come with a broken and a contrite heart before his Lord. What he's saying is that the unforgiven sinner can't just come before God in a way that will be pleasing to him. 
when an unforgiven sinner comes before God on their own terms, what happens is that more wrath is stored up, more indignation burns, more anger and righteous zeal from the Lord burns. It's an incredible warning, for one, on a superficial faith because the reality is that nothing that you and I bring to the table will sway God in the end. We can follow the letter of the law. We can hit every external marker to try and earn God's grace and mercy, but it just simply doesn't work like that. The sacrifice God requires is much, much harder to come by. True brokenness, true guilt, true remorse over our sin, true humility before the one that we have sinned against. The only thing we can come before God with is the rubble that we have left behind us in the wake of our sinfulness. All we can do with it is lay it before God with a broken and a contrite heart. I believe it's John Owen who said it like this, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. God desires a broken and a contrite heart, but the text just simply says, these he will not despise. The implication is that anything else we try to bring or that they would try to bring, he would despise, he would reject it. But a heart that is broken over sin and desires genuine repentance, he will accept. What this testifies to is reality that genuine repentance or true repentance is never just surface deep. Right? When you and I so often try to do is we, we come dutifully to church with a series of private sins that we've not truly repented of, and the result is that what we do is bring forth impure and improper worship. Beloved, we can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He knows. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows if we have secret sins that we delight in. <laughs> I was talking about this with my wife recently. I was actually asking if she minded if I did this because I didn't want to just openly shame. But there's been plenty of times in our marriage where we've been in a fight on our way to church. And what we've done is we simply seek forgiveness. After we pulled up in the parking lot, we get into church and we're scrambling with the kids and everything like that. And you know what happens when we get right back in the car or what did happen when we get right back in the car? You pick up where you left off and start fighting again, right? (laughs) We came and did our duty, but our hearts weren't right. Therefore, our worship was not right. What we lacked was a broken and a contrite spirit. It was only when we actually started to look at our sin in light of it being offensive before God and God alone that God is our ultimate reference point that things started to change in our marriage. My point's not that you need to be perfect when you come to sin or that fights won't ever happen on the way to church, right? I mean, what we needed to understand was that our worship of God began right then and there in that car and how we treated one another and our worship continued as we got to church and our worship continued as we left church all throughout the rest of the week. The sin didn't magically stop, but what changed was that we actually started to have a genuine brokenness over our sin instead of feeling wounded and offended by the other person. We didn't want things to change just so we could have a happy marriage, quote-unquote. What we wanted to change was that we would glorify God with our marriage, that people would see our marriage and see Christ. We wanted to bring God praise. 
again, God knows what's in our hearts and what it is that we secretly delight over and what we're not yet desiring to repent of. All of these things affect worship. That's where David is at here. That's what happened with David. He knows he could go and make his empty sacrifices and offerings before the Lord, but he knows that God would just simply reject it. What the Lord required of him was a broken and contrite spirit. What the Lord required of him is that he came with a spirit to honor the Lord, and that's what you and I need if we're going to display true repentance over our sin. We need genuine brokenness, first and foremost, over what we've done that is a sin against our Lord. But secondly, we need a genuine concern for the glory of God. That's what it boils down to at the end. Notice though that David doesn't just want this for himself. He wants it for all of God's people. Look at verses 18 through 19. We see him bring this reality home. It says, By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Notice the first concern he has in verse 18 is that the favor or the grace of the Lord prospers Zion and that he build the walls of Jerusalem. And all he's asking for is that the Lord would be gracious to his own people. Right? He asks God to do good according to his favor or his grace, and then he asks that God protect them. It's a relatively simple request, right? But notice it's all born out of this focus of God getting the proper glory that he is due. Right, that's the focus of verse 19, but it takes a unique flavor to it because David prized, or ties rather their proper sacrifices and offerings to the grace of God and caring for them. In other words, if God is not gracious and God does not protect them, they won't be able to offer proper sacrifices before God and they won't bring him delight. They won't bring him glory. And so in what way does David want God to do them good and protect them? Well, perhaps it's a general statement. But more than likely, David is praying this in light of everything that he's already said in this psalm. Right? David knows his own condition is bad. He knows that he's all messed up in every single way, that he's been wayward, rebellious, and flagrantly disobeyed the law. He knows the hearts of men well enough to know that everyone else suffers from the same condition that he does. In other words, the rest of Israel is equally as defiled as he is. They all have an impure heart. They are just as prone to false worship. And so David prays that the Lord would be gracious and compassionate to his people, much like he did for himself in verse 1. He asks that the Lord, in essence, would forgive them, that the Lord would care for them, and the Lord would protect them, all so that God might be glorified, and they would bring forth true offerings and sacrifices before him. It is only when God acts in grace that the people could come before him and please him. That's what it all boils down to, even here. It is only through grace that they could come before him and bring him glory. It's only through the grace of God that people could even approach him in the first place. Their sin has rendered them so defiled and so corrupt that in the very presence of the Lord, if he unbridled his full glory, they would just drop dead on the spot. So David ends just as he began. He appeals to God for his mercy and his grace because he knows that without it, they can't do anything. 
A true repentance, this is the final mark of true repentance, by the way. True repentance appeals to God for his mercy and his grace because you have nowhere else to go. Well, beloved, we have nowhere else to go. I want you to know and notice how every bit of this psalm is a plea for mercy and grace. It just bleeds with it. It oozes with it. Right? That's ultimately where true repentance begins and ends, but it's where it takes every step along the way as well. The mercy of God is what leads him to see us in all of our rebellion and waywardness and sinfulness and that he deliberately chooses to not give us the punishment we deserve if we confess our sins. Grace is the extension of God's mercy where God doubles down by giving us the free undeserved our gift of his love. But that mercy and grace is not just some general kind of love. It's a very, very specific kind. And it's only found in what we call the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality is that you and I are in this psalm and we are utterly hopeless. There is nothing that you and I can do to earn God's favor. In every way, we fall short. We deserve wrath and judgment. It's not that we have just a little bit of sin here and there that messes us up, but that's, that's our problem. It's who you and I are. We're sinners by nature. We are by nature rebellious. We go our own way. We fall short of the glory of God every waking moment of the day. It doesn't matter if you've murdered somebody, not in the grand scheme of things. That's what I'm trying to point out here. It doesn't matter if you've simply lived your life without giving thanks to God. Either one of those things will land you in hell. That's what we deserve. And the reality is that you know just as well as I do that sin will always be present until the Lord returns or we go to the grave. We will always be dealing with the problem of our true spiritual condition. We will always have this sin hangover. Try as we might, we still sin. We're still impure. We are still messed up. We still have wayward hearts and are prone to false worship. But the broken and contrite spirit, God will not despise. 1 John 1.9 says it like this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word for confession is the Greek word hamalageo, which means to be of the same mind or of one mind or of agreement or in agreement rather with God. And what he's talking about is that if we are in agreement with God over the true reality of our sinfulness, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, but not just forgive us, to cleanse us all through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Beloved, every bit of it is mercy and grace. That's why the gospel is such good news. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we just own it. That's why we do every bit of this. It's not because somehow we're going to curry the favor because the Lord knows our own hearts are against us. God promises to forgive us in Jesus Christ and to purify us through Jesus' blood And the basis of it does not rest on what you and I can do, but purely on who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. The basis of our repentance rests on God, on who God is and what he has done and what he has promised to continually do. And this is where our hope must always be. 
The same merciful and glorious God of David is our God. If you come to him with a broken and a contrite heart, exclusively by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, these things he will not despise. How great is our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are incredibly merciful to us, that you do not treat us as we deserve. We are sinners. We are rebellious at times. We are wayward at times. We are often simply ignoring even just pure principles of wisdom and goodness. So I pray that you would purify our hearts once more, that you would cleanse us once more. We know that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ, but that we still embody this body of death. But I pray that you would set our hearts and affections on Jesus Christ, that you would set our hearts and affections on your word and your commandments, that we might walk by them and honor you and bring you glory as you are due, that we might live with ultimate reference to you, that we would show a dying world what it looks like to love you, that they might see that our works are not what earns us salvation, but they are, in essence, what we can do to simply show thanks of what you have done for us. We plead with you that you would save the people of our nation and our city, that we might be used as vessels of mercy, that we might preach the gospel boldly and tell them of the grace in, of you in, our, in Jesus Christ. We would not shrink back, but that all the days of our lives we would point people to our blessed Savior and that you would cause us to run the race with endurance to the very end, knowing that you have given us such great promises. I pray that as your people go home this week, that you would bless them. You'd keep them safe, cause them to return again this next week where we might join yet again to praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.